Welcome to the Jesus the Game Changer podcast from Olive Tree Media, hosted by Carl Faze. In today's podcast, Carl's guest is sociologist Rodney Stark, author of more than 40 books, including The Rise of Christianity. A common theme throughout his books is the growth of Christianity from a small movement in Galilee to the majority religion of the Roman Empire. Rodney, you've written a number of books around the triumph of Christianity. What was your kind of interest in exploring that subject matter? Well, it's oddly enough, I backed into the whole thing. I started out in graduate school. I was recruited <coughs> to work on a, on a great huge survey uh, having to do with Christian beliefs and anti-Semitism and mostly focused on the, on the religious aspect of it. Um, I wasn't planning to be a sociologist of religion, it just kind of happened. And uh, then through the years as I was doing this or that, I began realizing that uh, there was a lot of neglect of the history. That, uh, well, for one thing, there were too many historians uh, who were statistically illiterate. Um, that, that, that were pretty simple arithmetical things were simply being neglected and overlooked. And so I sat down and, and tried to figure out uh, what kind of a rate of growth the early church would have had to have had to got as big as it, as it did, and discovered that wasn't really a very rapid rate of growth as these things go, and that uh, it wasn't miraculous, it wasn't strange, it was uh, um, fairly ordinary. And moving from there, I thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe I should start studying uh, the history of the early church. And um, I discovered uh, I love doing that. <laughs> what was it surprised you most about that? Well, you know, we had the idea that uh, until you sit down and work with the compound interest formula, you don't realize how rapidly is, let's, let's assume uh, uh, a rate of growth of, uh, um, three or four percent uh, a year. And suddenly you get astonishingly large numbers in a relatively short period of time. And when you start playing around with this sort of thing and saying, oh wow, no, it, it really wouldn't have taken a very rapid rate of growth to get to three, four, five, six million Christians by the year 200, 300, whatever. And uh, it gives you pause and say, now just a second, this, uh, this looks like a very reasonable uh, kind of thing. Uh, you know, the, uh, there was an historian that said the most miraculous thing about the growth of Christianity is that it could have grown so large without any miracles. <clears throat> and that's kind of true. That. Uh, There are religious movements that have come along since that have grown as rapidly. Not as long, but, uh, but the fact is that uh, once you realize um, how easily it could have happened, then you can start understanding better how it did happen. You don't have to start grasping at, uh, at, at implausibilities. You can say, well, the, uh, what the Bible tells us about what was going on probably was what was going on. Uh, and then you start thinking that way and you start thinking, rethinking a lot of things. For example, uh, uh, I was very concerned early on about the notion that uh, 
that this was a movement of, of, of the slaves and the ignorant. Um, because we've got the, the Gospels to deal with. And they're around by 70, 80. Who could read if this was a religion of slaves and, uh, and, and the ignorant? Uh, why would they have wanted any Gospels? Uh, you know, do you write them for two people? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And then, of course, I ran across a wonderful Australian scholar named Judge who pointed out the obvious once it was pointed out, which is uh, the Apostle Paul didn't say, none of you were intellectuals, none of you were educated, none of you were noble, none of you were highborn. He said, not many of you. Well, that means some were. And you look, that opens the whole door. After all, there weren't very many noble people in the Roman Empire altogether. And he starts saying, well, if some of them were noble, well, what else is going on? And the next thing you know, you start realizing that there's evidence of uh, Christians in the imperial family as early as the year 50. Uh, it changes the whole view. And you don't have to do something radical. You don't have to be one of these guys who comes along and says, you know, uh, I've got it all figured out and it's all backwards because it isn't backwards. Uh, it's right there. And it's, 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 it all works. And I had a marvelous time with that. You, there was a number of spaces where you saw that the church, the teaching of Jesus and the early church actually shifted the way people acted within the community. And one of the areas was kind of about need. And so if we would explore the Greco-Roman world, if you were in need in the Greco-Roman world, what were your options? Little and none. Uh, there were no social services. But of course, early on within the Christian community, uh, there were social services. Uh, the Christians did look after the widows. They did look after the poor. Uh, an early pope was, was, was in fact bought out of slavery. Um, not after he was pope, but I mean, well before. But uh, uh, they were basically setting up a different model of society. Uh, it was enormously attractive. Actually, when you start looking at the early church within the context of the, of the Roman Empire, you wonder why everybody didn't turn Christian, you know, in the first 10 years. Uh, take women. You know, you really look at the situation of the Greco-Roman women, the Roman women, uh, it was awful. And you compare that with the situation of Christian women and, and you really uh, wonder why, why every woman who ever heard about it didn't become a Christian immediately. I mean, Roman girls got married at 12, 13, 14 to men who were over 30. They had nothing to say about it and very little to say about it, the max. They could be divorced, snap of the fingers. Uh, and abandoned. There was, no, uh, uh, there was no divorce court telling me you have to pay alimony or anything like that. Christian women tended to get married at 18, 19, had a lot of say in who they married. Uh, divorce was thought to be impermissible. 
Uh, it was thought normal for Roman men to play around. It was thought a sin for Christian men to play around. Uh, Christian women had a, simply a much more secure, um, nicer life. But, but it's intriguing, isn't it? Because now people look at what, say, Paul taught about women, and there's this sense of, oh, that's a terrible view. But you're suggesting that he actually shifted. Well, you know, no. We, we, people don't read the whole Bible verse. I mean, it's, you know, better to marry than to burn. Yeah, right. It doesn't mean than to burn in hell. It means to burn with passion. And then he goes on to talk about uh, uh, marital relations. And the, he advises people not to be celibate. That that was, they could do that briefly for some kind of uh, religious reasons, but that that was not the way you were supposed to live. Now, some people like to quote where he says that the woman's body belongs to her husband, but the next line says the husband's body belongs to the wife. Uh, this was very symmetrical. It was very different from what we're always, I mean, I've assumed uh, that Paul was against marriage, and he wasn't at all. And the Bible isn't. The Bible's very pro-natal, very pro-marriage. Um, in important ways, in the context of the, of the Roman world, very pro-woman. So, Ronnie, what about children? What was a lot of children in the Greco-Roman world? The Romans often abandoned, if you will. You see, they didn't want to take a little girl out and just cut her throat. So what they'd do is they'd lie her up by the roadside. Then we're talking about, you know, a day old to a day old infant. And the idea was that if somebody came by and wanted her and picked her up, uh, then she was going to have a life. And if they didn't, they didn't. Um, mostly they didn't. Um, it's even worse than that. It would be, it's very hard, I think, for modern people, myself included, to realize that abortion was widespread in the Roman Empire at a time when there were no antibiotics, they didn't know anything about germs or cleanliness, uh, the fatality rate was enormous. And you say, well, if women were running such an enormous risk of death or serious uh, disability, why did they have abortions? It wasn't up to them. Husbands decided whether or not there was going to be an abortion. And again, here's, their, here's these older men with these very, very young women. And uh, frankly, wives were easy to replace. And they didn't worry much about it. I mean, this is not a world that we can find very attractive. So into this steps the teaching of Jesus. What was the difference about the teaching of Jesus that the church picked up on? Well, I suppose the main thing he taught is that life was sacred. That uh, uh, the life of everyone, that people were to take care of one another, that we were our, our brother's keepers, that, uh, uh, that we had a responsibility to look after the old and the young and the disabled and the ill. Um, you know, it showed up incredibly 
during the two great plagues that hit the Roman Empire very early in Christian days, um, the wealthy Romans fled the cities when it happened, including the physicians and the priests. The Christians stayed, they nursed the ill, took care of people, and as a consequence, some of them, some of them died of the plague, of course. But Christians survived the plague at a much higher rate because, as a matter of fact, uh, if you give people food and water and care for them during the height of their illness, many of them will survive. And so there was apparent to all these pagan neighbors that the Christians were outliving them uh, because they're taking care of one another. Uh, it was an enormous lesson, but it was the essence of the Christian lifestyle that, that people care for one another and look after one another, and that there's this much greater sense of an intimate community, a community of believers, but then uh, a community of people who, who gave money every month to, t to take care of widows and orphans and, and, and whatnot uh, uh, in a world that had no social services. Uh, uh, there was a Roman emperor somewhat later, Julian the Apostate, uh, who said, who wrote to the pagan temples and said, you've got to start looking after the, 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 the sick people and the, and the poor uh, because these Christians are doing that. And they're, they're doing it just, of course, to uh, um, outdo us and, and make us look bad. It, it was nothing the idea that they were doing it out of virtue. But of course, his directions to the temples went nowhere because there was, there was, there was no base for it. There was, there was nothing in the pagan traditions uh, about giving money to the poor. Uh, the, the way you, you gave something to the uh, you gave something to the priests for their care, and you'd buy an ox and, and have it slaughtered and feed all your friends, but there, there was nothing there about, about social services because there was nothing there about, uh, about the sanctity of life and about uh, your responsibility to one another. Today, people would find that really odd. Wouldn't they? Because today in, in countries, Western countries, the, the, the kind of sanctity of life, I would right. guess, and the importance of each individual is just a part of almost the air that we breathe. Right. It's intri intriguing to think that there was a time where that wasn't the case. Yes, but then look around the world. It isn't always, it isn't, isn't true in, in, in many other nations. Um, it isn't true in many parts of Asia that, that people feel these kinds of responsibilities to one another. Uh, or if they do, it isn't part of a, the religion. Um, I'm sure there were Romans who cared about one another. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, people do. But it wasn't built into the system. Uh, it, it wasn't part of the thing that everybody was raised believing. Uh, and, and the fact that we have these views in the West is because we were raised in, 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 the, in these traditions and in these views. Now, of course, some of this came from, from, from the, the Judeo tradition uh, within which uh, Jesus arose. Um, it's, it's, of course, the secret of the West. We 
hope you are enjoying this podcast. Olive Tree Media seeks to introduce people to Jesus, communicate a Christian worldview, and transform beliefs, attitudes, and lives through media. Now let's get back to the interview. As we flow on from that, there's, an, a, just, there's a whole number of areas where the, the, the early church and the, the kind of attitude of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus kind of shifted to our community. And one of them is in the area of education. Now we take free education of the communities for granted. Who was educated at these times? Very few. Um, literacy probably ran 5%, possibly, possibly 10, but certainly, certainly no higher than that. And, and out in the, in the provinces, much, much lower. Um, the rich read. And then, of course, that goes back again to my earlier point about uh, why were there Gospels by the year 60 and 70 if only the rich could read? And that's because there were plenty of, of uh, the Christians weren't about a bunch of down-unders. Uh, it's, uh, there's a wonderful scholar who's analyzed uh, Jesus' sermons. And he said, you know, these were not sermons aimed at the ignorant. These were sermons that, that used imagery and, and comparisons and parables that would be understood by, by literate people and people of privilege. Uh, th there was a whole lot about uh, being responsible with your wealth. And when, oh, why are you telling desperately poor people that they ought to give their money to the poor. Uh, they haven't got any money to give the poor. They are the poor. Uh, but again, it seems that, you know, the, the early church was quite different than somehow uh, for a long time people were, were led to believe. And, and I guess the popular view still is there. So where did, where did education and, say, universities as we know them, which is your background, where did they, where did they start? What was the University beginning? started in the 11th 12th centuries. They were entirely founded by the church. Um, and they were real universities. I mean, they were about studies of higher education, if you will. It was, it was about, uh, I mean, science begins in these early universities. Uh, Natural philosophy was an early part of the whole Christian outlook, intellectual outlook, is that uh, the world is rational because it was created by a rational God. The world will run according to rules because God not only created on the basis of reason, but he gave us reason so that we could understand things. And the assumption that the world could be understood was the whole basis of what came to be Western civilization. Um, you don't study and look for explanations of how the world works if you don't believe that the world works according to reason. And if you look back in the, uh, the philosophy of, of, of China at the time and what the, everybody outside the Christian West 
believed that the world was incomprehensible because it, it was a, an eternal mystery that you can meditate on it, but it was pointless to try to understand it because it was ununderstandable. And the Christians, on the contrary, believed that it could be understood. Uh, and some of the very earliest church fathers are saying, we don't understand this today, but we will. We'll understand, and sometimes I was thinking about what God meant and whatnot, but, but the whole idea of progress was in fact a Christian ideal. And the idea that, that 20 years from now things will be better and we'll know more. Uh, we all take that for granted. But in fact, in most of the world, particularly the ancient world, you would have been laughed at if you said such a thing. It just turns out it was true. The Christians were right. The universe could be understood, which is why, in fact, we're sitting here talking on camera and, uh, and it's going to be shown over a television and whatever, because this stuff only happened because we thought it could happen. You did some research on the first scientists, didn't you? The first, yes. the first people that we kind of, as scientists, as we understood them. Right. And scientists now, science and scientists are often pitted against Christian faith. Right. What were the first scientists like? <laughs> well, the first scientists uh, really go back to, uh, to the early universities. And they were all ordained. I mean, we're talking about priests, some of, some of them were cardinals even. And then when we come into what's called the scientific revolution of the 1700s, these were profoundly religious men. And I say men because there weren't any women among them for all kinds of reasons. But the fact is that Newton wrote a lot more theology than he did physics. He was a very religious man. Most of them were. There was only one, Halley, who probably was irreligious. Uh, probably uh, 20, 30 percent of them were, were actually uh, priests and ordained. They were a very religious group of people, and they were in religious universities for, for the most part. Uh, they not only saw no contradiction between religion and science, they saw nothing but a, but a meshing and a complete fit between religion and science. And the fact of the matter is most scientists do today. Uh, they don't write books about it, and they don't get their, their, uh, themselves on the media like, uh, you know, Dawkins and some of these people, you know, with their... Um, but the fact of the matter is that religion, we have science because of religion. That's how much it fit together. And there is no necessary inconsistency. Religion is not about the material world, in, in the sense when we're talking about the existence of God and whatnot. Science is only about the material world. Science can say nothing about whether an immaterial or spiritual world exists or doesn't exist. Uh, scientists can say they don't believe it, but science as such can't tell you anything about a non-material realm. So uh, there's no overlap, and the two have no need to collide at all.
Going back, those, those first universities often, often and, and hospitals often came out of kind of monastic movements and monasteries. Give us a picture of what, what they were like, because I guess today we tend to see here's a group of people that locked themselves away and left the world. What, what were monasteries like and what difference did they make? Well, monasteries were, were communities. People, of course, you know, dedicated their lives to the church, but they didn't lock themselves up. They weren't unworldly, they had their livings to make. And consequently, capitalism was invented in the great monastic communities of Europe. Uh, when the, uh, the people running the monastery said, no, we're not, we don't give our stuff away. And uh, the marvelous thing about the monasteries, of course, is they could make long-term economic plans and they would always be uh, they were meritocracies, of course, because they didn't have to deal with idiot sons. You know, the nobility had to deal with the fact that they'd come along with a guy who'd, who'd waste all the money or, 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 or was an idiot or, or whatnot. But in the monasteries, it was always, you know, they didn't put an idiot in charge. They always took the smart guys and put them in charge. Um, I'm sure there were plenty of idiots in the monastery, but they just didn't give them responsibilities. And, and they were these wonderfully run uh, factories and whatnot. What we've got going on, it was, it was amazing because they early on specialized uh, and consequently led to a money economy because trade was very inefficient. Uh, and so the guys who were making wine uh, bought their food from other places that were raising food and they bought their horses. From, I mean, there, there was one famous monastery in Italy that specialized in nothing but good horses. I mean, that's what they did. They bred and raised horses. Uh, it, was, it was an amazing, uh, it was amazing time. Did, did they just, were they, were they just money-making enterprises? What else did monasteries do? Oh, well, do? of course, they were, they were, they were intellectual operations. They, some of them wrote books. Uh, they did a lot of worshiping. Uh, they, these, these were seriously religious people. Uh, I uh, did a little study in which I took the medieval saints from the year 500 to the year 1500. Uh, I coded them up. And the marvelous thing is 20% uh, uh, of them were from the nobility and most of the rest of them were from the very, very privileged. I'm sorry, 20, many more than 20%. 20% were from royalty. Uh, almost 60% were from the nobility. The point here being is that the connection between the monasteries, if you will, because the, most of them had been monastics, uh, the monasteries and the political elite was like members of your family are doing one or the other. And uh, so you've got brothers and sisters who are in the monastic movement. And, um, it, it, held, it held Europe together in interesting ways, and it put some moral constraints uh, on the nobility because uh, uh, the family members who were, who were monks and nuns would say, you know, you shouldn't be doing that dad or brother or sister or whatever. Uh, 
and, and it tied Europe together in some 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 very interesting ways and imposed a morality. It's interesting because because that kind of whole process of education and there were edu you know and, and not only with with universities but there was also educating edu educating children, and then that developed more into literacy because they wanted people to to, to right. read the Bible. But that actually had a, an influence on the the ability of, of democracy to rise, didn't it? Well, sure. I mean. Uh, Literacy spread uh, further in Europe than it did elsewhere in the world. For one thing, of course, uh, uh, Western literacy is easier than, say, uh, uh, in China or Japan. I mean, uh, learning six or seven thousand unique symbols to be, become minimally literate, that's pretty hard. Uh, when in fact all you have to do is realize that you're, you're just sounding out the words you're speaking. That's a whole lot easier to learn how to read. Um, and for, in that sense, the West had a huge advantage and literacy uh, was much, much more easily uh, achieved. Uh, you know, people admire how, how hard Chinese kids work in school. Well, that starts on the fact they've got to work really, really, really hard just to become barely literate. Uh, uh, there's no sliding by on those schools because uh, literacy is so difficult. And then, and then literacy and education actually gives people a, a, just a, a wider concept of what their rights are and, and, and shifts the community. <laughs> It gives you a much larger body of the public uh, who can be involved and will be involved. Um, it, of course, you know, these things, uh, it was in the, the Italian city-states that uh, in, in medieval times that you got democracy, democracy re-emerging uh, from the Greek tradition. And one of the reasons is that you had a substantial middle class uh, in, in, these, in these cities. And yes, um, a lot of literacy. And, um, and this whole fundamental Christian conception of humanity, you really didn't have the sense, as you did in, in many parts of the world, that the upper class were almost of a different race, almost, almost a different breed of humans uh, than the rest. Uh, uh, and there was a lot more moving up and down. Uh, uh, there were people who went in the army and became leaders who came out of pretty, pretty, pretty low backgrounds, but it, you know, talent outed, uh, or breaks or whatever. But there was, there was much more fluidity in the system and, uh, you know, that goes back to the early days of the church, the idea of buying people out of slavery. And one of them ended up pope. I mean, you know, that's, that's not the sort of thing that, uh, that you see in, uh, in non-Western uh, situations, or in the old days at least, uh, where uh, if you weren't born in privilege, there was no privilege for you. So, Ronnie, this series is called Jesus the Game Changer. With all the study and research you've done, how would you see Jesus as a game changer? 
Western civilization would not exist had not there been Jesus. Um, I did a book called How the West Won, the neglected story of the rise of modernity. And basically, uh, in the early important times, it's rooted in the church, it's rooted in Christianity, it's rooted in Jesus. Uh, these things didn't happen in the rest of the world. You can say, well, you know, this and that and other thing was invented in China, right, but it led to nothing. I mean, you even take something as simple as gunpowder. Whether that was invented in China or simultaneously invented both in China and Europe, we don't know. Doesn't matter. The Chinese used it for fireworks. And within a few years, I mean very few years, of gunpowder being available in Europe, you've got church bell uh, manufacturers all over Europe casting cannons. And in 1517, when uh, the Portuguese reached China, they had firearms, they had cannons on their ships, and the Chinese didn't have any of them. Uh, maybe the Chinese invented a clock. We don't know for sure. But they didn't know what time it was when the Portuguese got there because they didn't have any clocks. Uh, there were clocks all over Europe. Um, and all of this owes it goes back to the fact that Christianity believed in a rational world, a rational God, uh, a God of justice, um, God of logic, a God of virtue. All of these things conspired together to, to make it possible for us to be here in this kind of a civilized world. Uh, even though there are many uncivil, uncivil aspects to it, it's still the best that we could do. And it wouldn't have been done. Uh, we wouldn't have medicine. We wouldn't have hospitals. We wouldn't have uh, automobiles. We wouldn't have any of this if it hadn't been for the start of the whole thing, which was Jesus. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to support the radio, video and podcast ministry of Olive Tree Media, you can donate online at olivetreemedia.com.au and click on the donate button in the top right corner. We accept both tax deductible and non-tax deductible donations. Thanks for listening. Oh,